You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Hi there. If you're a fan of thinking about big ideas and want to hear from some of today's most thought-provoking speakers, then you should check out one of the world's most unique festivals. It's called How the Light Gets In, the world's largest philosophy and music festival, and it's taking place in Hay-on-Wye, Wales. From May 26th through to the 29th, this idyllic book town will bring in thinkers and musicians from across the globe, including Nobel laureates, Pulitzer Prize winners, and pioneering scientists to debate the most urgent issues of today. With the likes of Slavoj Zizek, Brian Greene, Roger Penrose, Fiona Hill, Esther Freud and Lisa Randall headlining, this isn't one to miss. What a 20% discount on festival tickets. Head over to howthelightgetsin.org and enter the exclusive promo code CTT23 for discounted tickets. If you can't attend in person, don't worry. The festival's online platform iai.tv has a wealth of festival content to enjoy. Head over to iai.tv to discover more. Welcome to Closer to Truth. I'm speaking with Michio Kaku about his visionary, expansive new book, Quantum Supremacy, how the quantum computer revolution will change everything. The book provides an insightful and accessible history of quantum theory, computers, quantum computing, and a sweeping survey of contemporary science and technology from biotech, personalized medicine, fusion and global warming to fundamental physics, cosmology and the structure of reality. Hi, Michio. It's great to see you again. I look forward to digging in. Well, I'm glad to be on the show. Good. Uh, let's start up front with an kind of an overarching summary of the book, Quantum Supremacy, how the quantum computer revolution will change everything. Um, your, your core ideas, um, the issues involved, the arguments you make, the conclusions, very briefly, just to give a framework. Well, even children know that computer power doubles every 18 months or so. And children ask the question, when is it going to stop? At what point will computer power no longer be exponentially growing? And that's when we start to compete on atoms. That's where the quantum computer comes in. Because one day Silicon Valley could become a rust belt. There could be mass unemployment there unless we grasp the fact that there's a new computer going down the line called quantum computers that compute on individual atoms. These are so powerful, perhaps millions of times more powerful than a conventional digital computer, so powerful that even the CIA is worried that it could break any known code. In other words, this is the ultimate game changer. Okay, and the application will be to all forms of uh, science and technology as the book uh, goes through. Uh, after understanding how quantum computing works uh, broadly, uh, then the applications to various areas. That's right. Quantum computers could change everything, just like digital computers changed everything. We're talking about a second green revolution, creating fertilizers that can feed the world. We're talking about super batteries that could help to thwart global warming. We're talking about fusion power. We're talking about perhaps even solving the question of cancer. 
the question of longevity. Why do we have to die? These kinds of questions are way beyond the power of a digital computer, but this is why we want to invent now quantum computers that compute the way Mother Nature computes. In other words, the biggest quantum computer of all is Mother Nature. Okay, well, we're going to get into all of this, including some of the downsides. Uh, we won't be too Panglossian about everything, but really explore it. Mitchell, let, let me give uh, a brief bio uh, before we, we really get, in, get into it. Um, Michio Kaku is a professor of theoretical physics at the City University of New York. He's a pioneer in string field theory and the author of several widely acclaimed science books, some of which we've spoken about on Closer to Truth, including Hyperspace, Beyond Einstein, Physics of the Impossible, Physics of the Future, and The God Equation, which was our last video, which we really enjoyed. Uh, so, Micho, let's start with some basic fundamental uh, concepts. And uh, the, the basic concept of a digital computer is a bit, and the quantum computer is a qubit. So what's the difference? Well, first of all, there have been three generations of computers. The first were analog computers, computers that compute on levers, gears, and pulleys. You turn the crank <laughs> on an analog computer, and it is a calculation. Then we went electronic. We went to digital computers, computers that go on and off, on and off, on and off, calculating at near the speed of light. That's the second generation, digital computers. But you see, there's a limit to digital computers. We're hitting that limit now as Moore's law, which says a computer power doubles every 18 months, is beginning to flatten out. Silicon Valley could become a rust belt. So instead of computing on bits, that is zeros and ones, zeros and ones, quantum computers compute on qubits. Now think of an atom. An atom can be spin up or spin down. So a digital computer exists in two modes, up or down. A quantum computer can exist in all possible modes, upwards, backwards, sideways, making them infinitely more powerful than a regular computer. Okay, uh, there are challenges, of course, with uh, qubits because it's based on uh, uh, maintaining the, the, the quantum integrity of the system. And of course, we know that anytime a quantum system interacts in some way with a measuring device or, or something in the environment, it will decohere or, or disappear as a quantum uh, in terms of that superpositioning. Uh, so there are many challenges uh, in, uh, in, in actually creating this. That's right. People ask the question, where's my quantum computer? If they're so powerful, if they make the computer of today look like an abacus compared to the future, then where's my quantum computer? Well, because they compete on atoms rather than transistors, they are susceptible to the slightest vibration. Somebody coughs, somebody sneezes, and this coherence then is dissolved and atoms spin to, begin to spin randomly. That's why we need to cool them down to near absolute zero. That's difficult. That's why it takes so long to create quantum computers, but now we have them. IBM, for example, is now claiming that it can make a quantum computer with a thousand qubits. So we're talking about breaking all the all the naysayers' predictions of the past. Okay, let's understand what that thousand means, because uh, as you were talking about um, uh, Moore's law, uh, that's the number of of uh, transistors that can be that can be. Uh, 
uh, etched onto a, a specific geometric area. Uh, using our iPhones as example, I think the current iPhone 14 uh, has something like the equivalent on its CPU of uh, 11 billion uh, transistors, uh, the equivalent uh, in in its, and, and that has been increasing substantially. Now that's a so that number is 11 billion. Keep that in your head. And you've just given me the number of 1,000. Uh, so 1,000 is uh, 10,000 times smaller, right? than uh, than uh, 11 billion or so. Uh, so why why then is the thousand uh, more powerful than the uh, 11 billion? Because you're using it at an exponential relationship. So explain how that works. Well, the 11 billion for a digital computer corresponds to the states going up or down, up or down. So 11 billion orientations of up or down. Right. But now these atoms could be wobbling in all possible directions. How many directions? An infinite number of directions. <laughs> so quantum computers are infinitely more powerful in principle than an ordinary digital computer, which computes on zeros and ones, zeros and ones, zeros and ones. Let's say, for example, we have a curve like this. A digital computer would approximate a curve like this yeah. with zeros and ones, zeros and ones. But a quantum computer can visualize the object as it actually is. In other words, how much more powerful is a qubit versus a bit? Infinitely more powerful. Yeah, and the number of possibilities is uh, not a, a, a linear polynomial relationship with the 11 trillion, 11 billion uh, transistors, but rather an exponential. So you have n to the 1,000th because the, the, it, it becomes a geometrical progression. That's right. Think of putting a, a mouse in a maze. At each juncture of the maze, the mouse has to go left or right, left or right. So it's not too hard for a computer to catalog all possible trajectories of a mouse in a maze, one at a time. A quantum computer puts the mouse in a maze and calculates all possibilities instantly. All possibilities, not one by one, but instantly looks at the entire array of possibilities. That's why quantum computers are, as I mentioned, infinitely more powerful on certain tasks versus digital computers which compute on zeros and ones, zeros and ones. Okay, so let's now focus on what you said about the specific tasks, because uh, everything you said is true in theory, as you point out. We know what Richard Feynman came up with some of these ideas, David Deutsch, about the um, possibility of quantum computers with all the enormous complexity, but how you read it and the approach limits the kinds of questions it can be dealt, dealt with. And, Initially, it was very speculative. It was a new idea, but nobody really thought it could be made practical because how do you get information out of the system? But then uh, the area of uh, quantum information theory began to be developed. Uh, and for example, uh, a breakthrough in that area was uh, Peter Shore in 1994 came up with a, a very important, at that point it was theoretical, but it showed how the system could be made to solve a practical problem, which was finding the prime factors of, of, an, of any integer, enormous integers. Why that's critical is for cryptography, as you mentioned before. So explain that, that how the development of, of quantum information theory 
articulated with the basic um, uh, uh, quantum computing uh, theory uh, from a from a, a theoretical point of view. Now, the world economy depends on digital computers, and it depends on factorizing a very large number. Take a number with 100 digits, 100 digits in a number, and ask you to factorize it as a product of two smaller numbers. It may take you a few thousand years to do that calculation. And that's what we use to protect our crown jewels, the secrets of nations, the CIA, the KGB, all these organizations use computer codes to protect their secrets. But quantum computers can crack any such code. This means that the CIA is very much interested in the progress toward quantum computers, because not only can they usher in a new quantum age, maybe solving the problem of cancer, aging, all these problems with food production, solar power, global warming, but also cracking the crown jewels of any security agency. In other words, criminals are very much interested in quantum computers. It's not just the CIA is interested. You and I are interested because they can crack our bank codes uh, and the bank securities and, and steal funds. And this, so that that's a, a serious uh, aspect that will affect everyone. That's right. That's why we physicists are actually looking at ways to counter quantum computers because they are so powerful they can break into any known digital code. Mm. Now, we're not there yet. I don't want to scare people, but the alert is out. The U.S. government has already issued directives saying it's going to happen. It will happen. Be prepared when quantum computers can crack your most treasured code. So how has quantum information theory uh, developed uh, from that initial uh, Peter Shore um, exploration of factoring? Uh, because factoring is a critical problem issue. You mentioned it, it's a cryptography, it protects secrets, it, it's all of our financial transactions, but that's a, that's a very limited function. You've now given this expansive idea of quantum computing, uh, working from batteries and fertilizers and curing cancer, uh, all those are very different kinds of problems. Uh, so how can quantum information theory take us from the one problem that quantum computers can do, which is factoring of large numbers into the, the uh, these other much broader uh, applications? Well, it's all a matter of counting. If you want to factorize a huge number, you start with smaller numbers, multiply them, and try to create a map of where the this final solution is. So both quantum computers can be used for factorizing numbers, as well as curing maybe the aging process, maybe cancer, because all of them depend upon being able to model the motion of electrons. And that's what it's all about. The universe is based on electrons. Electrons are not zeros and ones, zeros and ones. They're smooth, they're wave-like. And we use the quantum principle of atoms to model the quantum properties of atoms. In other words, we use the quantum to crack the quantum code rather than zeros and ones to crack the code of electrons. So we're, in essence, the quantum computing computer is speaking the, the uh, uh, quantum uh, fundamental principle of what it's working on. So you're matching the technology or the access to the actual system, and therefore you get a, a much closer coherence. That's right. We're using the quantum to crack the quantum code. For example, to find new drugs, 
a pharmaceutical firm analyzes thousands, thousands of different trial drugs and tests each one individually in a petri dish to find the next drug. That's not systematic. Quantum computers can do quantum chemistry in the memory of the computer without having to make thousands of petri dishes. We're talking about virtual chemistry, virtual biology. This is incredible. Instead of having to create test tubes with thousands of different kinds of chemicals, it could all be done in the memory of a computer. That will speed up the problem of finding new drugs uh, by an infinite factor because we can do it at the speed of light inside the memory of a quantum computer. Good, Michio. Let's uh, get right into the book. Uh, part one is Rise of Quantum Computers. And you start with, and let's start with uh, really the title of your book and explaining what it means, quantum supremacy. What is the supremacy? Supremacy over what? Well, the question was, is it possible to compute on individual atoms? This question was asked by Nobel Prize winner Richard Feynman decades ago, and many people shook their heads. They say atoms are so delicate, so tiny, you sneeze and the atoms can be blown away. Impossible. But that's why these recent developments are so incredible. Now the Chinese, the I IBM, Google, uh, Honeywell, all the big players are jumping into this multi-billion dollar game of perfecting quantum computers. Quantum supremacy is the point at which quantum computers can exceed the ability of a digital computer on certain problems. That was attained two years ago. The Chinese and Google showed that it is possible for a quantum computer to exceed the power of an ordinary digital computer by factors of millions of times. That was the game changer. Now the race is on. Everybody is jumping into this game, realizing that this could be the pot of gold, the pot of gold waiting for the company or individual that can market a quantum computer in real life. <laughs> You talk about uh, several different categories uh, of ways of thinking about quantum computers in terms of their applications. These are application categories. And I'd like to uh, just mention a few and have you explain it because that's a good way to begin to, to look at the specific applications as you talked about in food and in uh, healthcare and uh, global warming and various things. So, but these are the categories, the kinds of things that, that quantum computers uh, can do. Uh, the first is calculation and factoring, which is was the initial aspect of quantum information theory. So factoring is one, but that's not the only one. You have optimization, simulation, which is te testing in a, in, in, a, in a virtual environment, and even AI. So how do those different categories work in terms of application ways of operation? Then we'll focus on individual uh, specific technologies in which will apply those categories? Well, as you pointed out, the first practical application could be in code breaking with the result that quantum computers in principle can break any known code. And so the federal government of the United States has already issued a directive saying, watch out, quantum computers are coming. Now we're talking about quantum computers entering the marketplace. It's still rather primitive, but the automobile industry is very interested in this. They're interested in fuel economy. They're interested in reducing friction in, in terms of getting the best design for a car. 
So they're interested. Also, banks are interested, large corporations, because of minimization and maximization problems. You want to maximize profit, but minimize all sorts of uh, negatives that may affect your bottom line. So in other words, industries are not jumping into the game, realizing that there are some practical applications for this. And as a physicist, we know that fusion power is a definite possibility, but the hydrogen gas tends to be unstable. There's now talk about using quantum computers to help stabilize the hydrogen gas to the fusion reactor, which could set off a new industrial revolution. And I'm a physicist. I work on the Big Bang. I work on the theory of everything. But the equations are so complicated, the human mind cannot solve them yet. Maybe that's where quantum computers can come in. Maybe one day quantum computers can solve the theory of everything. The equation that eluded Einstein for the last 30 years of his life could be cracked by a quantum computer. Uh, let's talk about two of the categories you mentioned, um, optimization and simulation. Um, optimization will be, as you said, to maximize certain things like profits, minimize uh, input sources or sources of, of costs. Simulation is running like hundreds of thousands of, of, uh, uh, of protein structures virtually to test for drugs. So describe those two categories and then We'll, we'll see how those categories between optimization and simulation can apply to some of the specific areas. Well, there's a company in, in Canada, the D-Wave Corporation, that is already marketing a quantum computer to do minimization and maximization profits. In other words, if you want to maximize profits, minimize loss, you have to put all sorts of equations inside your, your master equation, your losses, the, the cost of materials, delay factors, it's very complicated. That's where quantum computers can help solve the problem of maximizing profits and minimizing losses. Also, we are made out of proteins. That's what the human body is made out of. But, but ordinary computers, digital computers are not powerful enough to understand how they work. It's like magic. All of a sudden, proteins can create skin, bone, cartilage, who knows what else we can do with proteins? And that's where quantum computers can simulate protein molecules. Protein molecules are huge. They consist of thousands, thousands of different kinds of atoms, way beyond the capability of a digital computer. That's where quantum computers can come in. Because once you start to apply quantum computers to proteins, the next step is cancer, Parkinson's disease, all sorts of diseases like Alzheimer's, those diseases are diseases of molecules, and that's exactly what quantum computers can simulate. We're going to get into that in more detail, but what I'd like to do now is still dealing with fundamental principles is talk about some of them that are uh, foundational to understanding how quantum computers work. Uh, one that you mentioned, which is very important in physics uh, and very relevant, is the principle of least action which uh, also relates to Feynman's famous path integrals to uh, discern all different possible paths and in, in each one with a probability analysis to get a true picture of, of what's happening. So explain that very briefly and then why that's important in, in quantum theory for, for quantum computers. 
Well, I teach quantum mechanics to grad students sometimes. And whenever I walk across the room, I tell my students that I visualize other copies of myself also walking across the room. In fact, hundreds, hundreds of copies of myself, each one thinking that they are the real me, each one walking across the carpet. That is the Feynman principle that quantum mechanics can be reduced to parallel universes. So instead of walking across the room as one solid object, which is what Einstein would prefer, no, at the quantum level, an electron takes an infinite number of paths from A to B. Now Einstein hated this idea, but sorry about that, Albert, he was wrong. This is how atoms work. And that's why quantum computers are so powerful. Why are they so powerful? They compute on parallel universes, not just one universe, that's called a digital computer, but quantum computers compute in all possible universes, and that gives you the computational power of quantum computers. So quantum mechanics has within it all these paradoxes of parallel universes, but there's a purpose behind it. Using all these parallel universes, we can do calculations that are impossible for a digital ordinary computer. No doubt that quantum computers can do things that are impossible, uh, certainly in polynomial time, as we say, or in the, in the age of the universe or multiple universes, uh, quantum computers can do what digital computers never can. Uh, but when you use the term, the reason is what's happening is that um, they're computing in parallel universes. I mean, that there's two ways to look at that. One is as a, a mathematical formalism which is the principle of least action and Feynman's path integrals. And another way is, is to take it literally, uh, which gets us into the multi-world interpretation of quantum mechanics uh, created by Hugh Everett, uh, d dismissed by most uh, as, as, uh, as irrelevant. And then of course, in recent years has come back very strongly. And David Deutsch famously has uh, taken uh, the parallel universes and applied that to quantum computing. But the, it's, it's fair to say that there are two different ways of understanding that. One is in the mathematical formalism, uh, which is as if real, and the other is it really is real. Uh, so, I, you know, the, the, why don't you uh, give some color to that? There is a controversy in physics even today, even today about the Schrodinger cat problem. The Schrodinger cat problem is the biggest paradox in all of physics. You put a cat in a box, attached to the cat is a gun. Attached to the gun is uranium. When the uranium fires, it fires the gun, which kills the cat in the box. But you see, if this is a quantum mechanical cat and a quantum mechanical gun, it means there's only a probability of the cat firing. So the, so the gun could be on or off. In other words, the cat can either be dead or alive. In quantum mechanics, what do we do? we add them together, the dead cat plus the live cat. And how do you know if the cat is dead or alive? You open the box. Now, Einstein thought this was stupid. He once said that the more successful the quantum theory becomes, the sillier it looks. But hey, what can I say? Einstein was wrong in this question. Now, the difference, as you mentioned, is one of interpretations. Does it mean that there really are two cats in the box 
one cat being dead, one cat being alive, two wave functions are acting, or is it just a mathematical trick? Well, this trick works every time. That's why we have lasers. That's why we have the internet. That's why we have this conversation. This conversation is made possible because of the cat problem. Mm. But what does it mean? We don't know. Even today, Nobel Prize winning physicists debate this question. How real are these other parallel universes? Yeah, what, what, what's your th thought on that? I work in string theory, which calculates with an infinite number of parallel universes. So I'm in the camp that the power of the quantum computer is precisely because it computes in an infinite number of parallel universes. That's where the power comes from. That's the power of mother nature. That's why molecules work. That's why lasers work. That's why all the wonders in your living room are based on that principle. Okay? Sure, sure. I mean, that, there's no doubt about that. The question is, is uh, are those literally computing in different parallel universes in a Hugh Everton um, multi-world interpretation, or is it in some uh, uh, you know Feynman path integral um, probabilistic way in in just one just in our literal one universe, but exploring all of these other uh, statistical probability uh, possibilities. Well, I once asked Steve Weinberg, uh, a Nobel laureate, about this exact same question. And he said that if you're in a room all by yourself, there are radio waves, uh, radio stations all over the world in that room. Right. You exist simultaneously with all these radio waves, but your radio is only tuned to one frequency. It has decohered from these other frequencies, no longer vibrating in unison. Now replace these radio waves with electron waves. Electron waves make up atoms. Atoms of what? Atoms of dinosaurs, pirates, uh, atoms of, of all sorts of things happening in your living room, okay? So why can't you touch them? Why can't you talk to dead people? Why can't you interact with these parallel universes? Because just like in radio, you no longer vibrate in unison with them. You have decohered from them. So believe it or not, in your living room, there are the wave functions of dinosaurs, but you can't interact with them because your electrons do not vibrate in unison with them, okay? And again, there are two ways of looking at it. One way of looking at it is that there really are dinosaurs in your living room, except you just can't touch them. The other possibility is that it's all a mathematical trick, but it gives you the same experimental result. Right, and th th there's no doubt about that. Uh, but the interpretation is obviously critical to the foundations of quantum theory, as well as our sense of what all, what all reality is about. So, you know, on Closer to Truth, we like to focus on that question. Uh, you know, the the uh, curing of cancer and, and uh, uh, amelioration of global warming is extremely important for all of us, uh, for sure. Uh, but we're focusing on the, the deep ontology of what it means. Well, to be very frank, nobody knows what it means. Feynman <laughs> himself said that he doesn't understand quantum mechanics at the philosophical level. All I'm saying is we have two interpretations, one physically, one mathematically. They give the same experimental result every time you do an experiment with atoms. But one is based upon an imaginary idea of living in parallel states. The other one is purely mathematical. 
Which is true? I don't know. But for that matter, nobody else knows either. <laughs> okay, let's move on to part two of the book, uh, Quantum Computers and Society. I'd like to begin with um, a very specific example. Uh, you've talked about how quantum computers are, is the way uh, Mother Nature works. Uh, talk about uh, photosynthesis, because uh, that is probably the the clearest example where quantum mechanics are the key element of how how the system works and it's be impossible to work otherwise and this is not a recent discovery but it is it was a critical discovery in terms of making real uh, how quantum mechanics is not just something for theoretical physicists but but works at the macroscopic foundation of life which is obviously photosynthesis well, as you mentioned, the secret of life on the Earth depends upon a process called photosynthesis, where we take ordinary chemicals, uh, carbon dioxide, oxygen, ordinary chemicals like chlorophyll, mix them together, and out pops out living things. And so scientists have wondered what makes it work. We've tried to duplicate this in the laboratory, and we cannot. You can get one photon one photon, a po the smallest particle of light, and it will start to initiate a process of photosynthesis. You can't do that using ordinary chemistry. You have to go to the quantum principle. And so now we realize that the key to photosynthesis is quantum mechanics. As you mentioned, it's something called the Feynman path integral. An electron sniffs out all possible trajectories, all possible paths, sniffs them all out, but then it chooses the one that gives you the highest probability. Now, we can argue about the interpretation. Does the electron really know where these parallel universes are? Or it just travels as if it knew where all these parallel universes are? I don't know. All I know is that when you put quantum mechanics into the equation, it works. It works. Mm -hmm. The reason why photosynthesis is so efficient so practical is precisely because the photon sniffs out all possible paths in the Feynman path integral. And so we now we realize that we have to use the full brunt of quantum mechanics to solve the secret of life. Life itself is a byproduct of the quantum principle. You talk about the, once we understand that, of creating artificial leaps or artificial plants that can do photosynthesis and therefore take uh, uh, convert uh, carbon dioxide to oxygen, which if could if that could be done in an energy efficient way, uh, could be a remarkable contribution to global warming. That's right. Why do we have so many problems with the weather, with the production of waste products? We realize that it's all chemistry, but it's chemistry done at the quantum level. And we've we've never been able to penetrate that because we've always assumed it was a chemical process. Now we realize that it's a quantum chemical process. There's something called catalysts. A catalyst speeds up the process of a chemical reaction. For example, take a look at rust. Everybody knows that water accelerates rust. That's why things get rusty, because they get wet. So in other words, that process of a catalysis is a quantum mechanical process. Quantum mechanics helps to speed up certain reactions, which in principle should take hundreds of years. But photosynthesis works just like that. In other words, it's quantum mechanics that speeds up certain life-saving chemical processes that shouldn't happen 
but there they are. Life itself is a byproduct of the catalysis of quantum mechanics. And, and so how would an artificial leaf work? You put together the basic ingredients. You, you take a launch pad, a launch pad that mimics the leaf itself. You have, of course, carbon dioxide, which then interacts with the photon. And then you have to put a little bit of magic involved. You have to be able to capture the photon in one of the traps inside the leaf. That's what we're doing now. We're not quite there yet, but the hope is that we'll be able to create unlimited quantities of food with artificial photosynthesis now that we know that it's a quantum mechanical process that is at the root of this magic. Now let's let's look at the application of uh, quantum mechanics uh, to various other categories and uh, in in terms of uh, uh, optimizing and, and developing what the world needs. You mentioned food with nitrogen fixing, uh, new green batteries that have enormous uh, uh, capacity and that are that are green, uh, solar um, energy, renewable energy from solar. All of these are things that are critical to the modern world. And your claim is, is that quantum computing for each of these uh, can develop them to a, a, a vastly different degree, a step function difference in the efficiency of solar, in the capacity of batteries, in the uh, nitrogen fixing in food, the artificial leaf we've talked about for potential climate change and more food. So how does how does a now quantum computing, how will that literally work in each of these categories? Well, let's sort of take them uh, one at a time. Uh, first of all, Mother Nature is, in some sense, the mother of all quantum computers. These processes in chemistry were once thought to be magical. So how do we reproduce them? We produce them experimentally in a Petri dish. And we do experiments with these different kinds of chemicals and organisms inside a dish. What happens inside the dish? Nobody knows. But you see, pharmaceuticals just try thousands of these different kinds of chemicals, hoping that one of them works. It's gambling. But this is where quantum computers can come in, because we now know that we can eliminate the gambling process, that we can begin to simulate the quantum mechanical process that makes antibiotics work, that makes all these wondrous chemicals work. Take a look at antibiotics. You talk to a chemist, how do antibiotics like penicillin how do they work at the atomic level? I don't know. They just work. Sometimes they destroy the, the wall of a cell, of a bacteria. Sometimes they interfere with the metabolism. But beyond that, we're clueless. That's where quantum computers can come in. Also, take a look at Alzheimer's disease. It was once thought that Alzheimer's disease was a, was a mystery because a certain renegade protein sometimes causes Alzheimer's in some patients, but does not create Alzheimer's in other patients. Now we realize there's two kinds of these amyloid protein chemicals. One spins clockwise, one spins counterclockwise. Only one of them creates Alzheimer's disease. And that solves the riddle of why certain chemicals like proteins will cause Alzheimer's disease in some people, but not another. And now with quantum computers, we can pick that process apart and one day perhaps even get a cure for Alzheimer's disease because we can separate the left-handed and the right-handed proteins. 
And so for each of these cases, antibiotics, cancer, all these different kinds of chemical processes, we can now begin to think of applying quantum computers to understand how they work. That leads us directly into part three of the book, which is quantum medicine. Uh, you've mentioned uh, antibiotics uh, and uh, some specific diseases, Alzheimer's. Uh, let's talk about some of the other categories in terms of uh, gene editing and uh, curing cancer. Uh, cancer is, of course, uh, um, a very general idea, but there are hundreds, if not thousands, of different kinds of cancer. And so how can quantum computing specifically uh, apply to uh, curing cancer? One of the problems with cancer research is that there's not simply one cancer. There are thousands of different kinds of cancers. But with quantum computers, we're able to isolate the molecular mechanism that causes an ordinary cancer cell to go renegade and to proliferate and create a tumor inside your body. And we know that the secret to that process is your immune system. Now, we once thought that your immune system tackles diseases one at a time. You get a cold, your immune system attacks the cold. But how does the immune system know to attack that cold? It's never seen that cold before. Now we realize that when you're born, your immune system is primed to recognize trillions of different kinds of germs. This is amazing. At birth, practically at birth already, your body is primed to attack almost an infinite number of germs, only some of which you will actually encounter. And we're now beginning to unravel that process. The immune system cannot recognize certain cancers. That's why you die. Why is cancer so de deadly? Because it evades your immune system. But now we can actually take a little piece of the cancer cell, put it into a normal cell that recognizes that cancer cell and then kills it. So in other words, we now have a new mechanism for curing cancer at the molecular level. Now, this is sounds great in theory. Uh, people say, you know, how practical is this? But we have some real world evidence of the practicality with uh, AlphaFold, which uh, is a, uh, a, a demonstration uh, in digital computers at this point that you can simulate in a, the virtual world of a computer literally hundreds of thousands of different protein structures and have a, a very high hit rate in terms of the uh, experimental accuracy because one is a benchmark, uh, there's the quantum computing virtual analysis of, of protein structure, which has the, you know, one, as you said, one individual protein, it could have so many possible structures, the a normal computer couldn't figure it out in, in, the, in the universe in polynomial time. Uh, now we have hundreds of thousands of proteins, but AlphaFold has made a first effort to actually uh, uh, predict uh, very accurately the, the structure. So what AlphaFold has done in, di in the digital world using a supercomputer, what if you now apply a quantum computer to that same qu question, how, how much of a uh, of, of an uh, of an advance would the the alpha fold uh, uh, instantiated on a computer on a quantum computer be compared to a, a, a normal digital supercomputer? Well, alpha fold is a software program that allows us to unravel the structure of a very complicated protein, which then is inside our body, working the magic of biology. 
However, that's a question of software. Quantum computers is a question of hardware. It vastly increases the power of a software program. In other words, they work in tandem with protein folding problems relegated to software, with the actual mechanics of understanding the computation being a question of the hardware. They work together. Now just remember that even though we've been able to map thousands of protein molecules using a computer, they were approximations. Huge approximations were made. And so some of it was luck that we were able to get so close to thousands of different kinds of proteins. With now quantum computers, we can have the hardware by which to fill the gaps to create even more understanding of, quant of proteins and how they work. How do proteins work? We didn't know that till recently. Proteins work because of the shape of the protein molecule. It's like a key moving into a lock. The shape of the protein and the shape of the lock is what makes protein molecules work. And so now with quantum computers, we're able to see that in motion. You can actually see the fact that a key fits into a lock. And that's why, for example, COVID-19 uh, killed uh, millions of people around the world because of the fact that it was a new protein that we didn't see before that, like a key in a lock, unravels the defense mechanisms of a cell. We can now use quantum mechanics to unravel that process and perhaps cure incurable diseases. Let's talk about the relationship between artificial intelligence, uh, AI, and quantum computers, because uh, some people may think these are two things that are sort of being talked about and they're the same or in the same category, but really they're radically different ideas. They're completely different categories, apples and oranges, uh, but they can combine. So let's talk about that relationship uh, between AI and quantum computers. That's right. You've hit the nail on the head in the sense that artificial intelligence is a question of coding. It's a question of being able to create more sophisticated, different kinds of algorithms that allow you to mimic an object in nature. So artificial intelligence is done by coding. It's a software venture, while quantum computers talks about hardware. Now, what's the relationship between the two? The more powerful the hardware, the more versatile the software you can write with it. But it's not the reverse. Just because you have advanced software does not mean that you have advanced hardware. No, it's the other way around. Advanced software is ideally suited to advanced hardware, which makes the software possible to begin with. So it's like a left hand and a right hand. And so we think the combination of the software of artificial intelligence and the hardware of, of atoms will allow us to solve some of the biggest problems in artificial intelligence theory. The interaction between the software program, be it for AI or for the um, simulation of alpha-fold protein structure, uh, are different kinds of software, obviously. Are these the kinds of problems that are suitable for quantum computers and quantum information theory? Quantum computers are ideally suited for problems that are way beyond the potential of ordinary digital computers. For example, if I have a curve of an electron inside an atom, it's smooth. However, the 
digital computer breaks it up in terms of zeros and ones, zeros and ones, zeros and ones, while the quantum computer maps quantum curves to quantum electrons. So in other words, we're using quantum mechanics to solve quantum mechanics. And that is the way we should solve Mother Nature. Now, people then ask the question, well, this means that chemists will be out of work because all chemistry will be done inside a computer? Well, not necessarily. The chemists of the future who do not use quantum computers will probably be out of work because quantum computers will be like a hammer, an essential tool used by the carpenter. But chemists who use quantum computers will flourish because they will vastly increase their power because we could do virtual chemistry. We can test substance after substance at the speed of light inside a quantum computer's memory rather than creating it in reality in a dish, hoping and praying that one of these dishes will work. And so we see the power there, that the union of software and hardware is the future. We have the software, we're accelerating the process with chatbots and things like that, but the hardware has not grown because Moore's law is tapering off and that's where the next revolution could be. It could be a revolution in hardware. In part four, you talk about modeling the world and the universe, uh, categories like global warming, fusion, and then simulating uh, the universe. You've worked in string theory. Uh, give some sense of what those uh, very visionary ideas would be like. Well, one of the reasons why I got into this game, because I'm a physicist, not a computer scientist, is because in theoretical physics, in some sense, we're stuck. For example, when you take a look at the proton, a proton is made out of three quarks. But how do we calculate three quarks inside a proton using pencil and paper? And the answer is, you can't. No one alive has been able to solve the problem. A simple problem of the proton is too complicated. So how do we do it? Computers. We approximate space-time with a lattice and compute the properties of quarks on the lattice, and bingo, we get the proton. Now we have string theory. String theory is infinitely more complicated than simply three quarks inside a proton. You're talking about billions of subatomic particles, just like musical notes on a string. How many musical notes are there? An infinite number. And so we're stuck. So why not use quantum computers to solve the problem of string theory and the theory of everything. Now there's a cautionary tale. I'm tempted to think of the book of the restaurant at the end of the galaxy by Douglas Adams. In that book, there's a race of super beings that create a supercomputer that's asked one question. What is the meaning of reality? So the computer chugs and chugs and chugs for millions of years trying to find the meaning of reality. And finally it announces that it got it. The meaning of reality is the number 42. <laughs> so I would hope that one day, if we solve string theory, that we're not going to get the number 42 coming out of a quantum computer, but we will get the universe as we know and love coming out of a quantum computer. You, uh, near the end of the book, you talk uh, about uh, the year 2050, roughly mid-century, and what life would be like. Uh, uh, based on quantum computing and how it would affect our world. So just give a, a quick flavor of your vision of that. 
The world of 2050 is going to be unimaginably different than the world of today. Imagine the world 50 years ago when digital computers were in its infancy. What a world that was. And now we're talking about quantum computers, which are potentially exponentially more powerful than ordinary computers. It's going to change the entire landscape. We'll be able to solve problems that cannot be solved using a digital computer. The aging process, for example. Why do we have to die? Why do we have to get old? Cancer. We now realize that cancer is not one disease, but a collection of thousands of diseases. Perhaps quantum computers will find the root cause of all these different kinds of cancers. And so we're talking about perhaps recreating the human body, recreating life as we know it with the power of a supercomputer. And take a look at COVID-19. Think of the damage that it did to the world economy, to our lives. We'll be able to have an early warning system with quantum computers everywhere searching for the next virus. And as soon as it happens, boom, we're going to be on it. We'll be able to stop the virus before it starts to spread because we'll know how the virus works. How do viruses work? We don't really know. We think it's like a lock and a key mechanism of some sort. But other than that, we're clueless. We're going to solve the secret of life itself. With that, the secret of disease. And so that could give us a whole era of medicine that is totally different from the era today. How was penicillin discovered, for example? By hit or miss. How do we discover these new antibiotics? By hit or miss. Those days could be over. Well, that sounds very, very good for our uh, progeny. Uh, but, you know, maybe it's a little Panglossian, uh, the sunny optimism, the downside of quantum computers. Let's talk about that a little bit. You mentioned breaking uh, of uh, cryptography. Uh, criminal gangs would be unhackable. We'd not be able to, eat, to, to spy on them. Military uses, new weapon systems employing quantum computers. Uh, in uh, blocking communications of adversaries uh, uh, and having very new destructive capabilities. Are you worried about that? Oh, yes. Uh, just remember that quantum computers are like a hammer. A hammer can be used to create buildings, hospitals, all sorts of construction things, or hammers can be used to kill people. And so it's a question of who wields the hammer. I like to think that this technology has a moral direction. In that sense, I disagree with many other scientists who say, no, technology is amoral, has no moral direction. I think there is a silver lining to that in the sense that technology creates enlightenment, empowerment. People feel energized because they realize that they don't have to live like that. They don't have to live under a dictatorship. There is free floating information about how to organize how to make this world a better place. And with that comes the struggle for democracy. So I think that the fact that these quantum computers will make these, these things possible, these incredible advances possible, will also accelerate democracy, help to empower people so that they can take on uh, vested interests, so that they can make sure that the benefits of science are for everybody, not just the, the few. And so I think that science does have a moral direction. And I think the smallest unit of science is the decade. 
Anything smaller than a decade, you get random noise. History seems just random if you look at it decade by decade. But now take a look at the overall march of these decades, and you realize the enormous progress that we've made. Realize that just within the last few decades, an entire middle class has risen from the ashes of poverty after World War II. That is the largest increase in human wealth in human history after World War II. So that's why I tend to be optimistic that with this technology comes empowerment. With empowerment comes democracy. Uh, there are uh, aspects of uh, recent history that might uh, contradict that a bit. People said the same thing about the internet, that the internet would empower individuals, it would, uh, it would uh, democratize information, everybody would have access to uh, all, all kinds of uh, diverse views and therefore ameliorate problems in society. Uh, we have found exactly the opposite to be the case, that the internet focused uh, individual groups on their own uh, issues, uh, 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 self-confirmation uh, has occurred, and so different groups in society, political, religious, whatever, have been more, more uh, isolated from each other because of the internet. Uh, certain countries, we find, can use technologies to uh, structure the information in the internet in their own, uh, to, to their own interests. Uh, so we have very real examples of how the internet has caused uh, problems in the world. And so it's a complex story. Well, I like to quote from Deng Xiaoping of China. He once said that you have to open the window and sometimes a few flies come through the window, but yeah. you still open the window. And so I yeah. think that yes, there are some flies out there, but I think overall, History has a direction, and that direction is one of empowerment. That yes, there are some flies out there, but let's take a vote. If you ask the American people, would they want to go back, back before the internet, back before the electronic revolution? And I think the average person would say, hell no. Who wants to go back to those bad old days? Today, you can get unlimited information just by the push of a button. In the future, you'll simply blink. Blink and the entire sum total of human knowledge will be in your contact lens. Who wants to go back to the 50s before the coming of the Internet? I think most people would say, no way. No way am I going back. Let's, uh, let's conclude. It's been great, Micho. Let's conclude with, with, a, with some uh, kind of fun uh, foundational questions about uh, quantum theory and quantum computers. Uh, you call it uh, some quantum puzzles. I have a few of my own. I'm just going to list these, and I'd like you to give a very short answer in terms of what your views on some of these uh, quantum puzzles. So the first one, did God have a choice in making the universe? Uh, the famous debate between Einstein and Bohr. Well, I personally think that God had no choice because once you have the constraints of the quantum theory and relativity, the solution is so constrained. There's only one unique solution to that problem. Now, of course, when you solve the equation of the theory of everything, you may get a tremendous number of solutions. But the fact that there is one equation that allows the universe to be possible is a byproduct of the fact that God did not have a choice. The consequences of the quantum theory, the consequences of relativity are so stringent, so airtight, that I think there's only one equation that satisfies all of them. And so far, the only one which fits that category 
is string theory. That doesn't mean it's correct. There are critics of string theory, but so far the only theory that meets all the challenges created by the quantum theory and relativity is string theory. It has no rival. Did If God did not have a, a choice in how to construct quantum mechanics or string theory, given that uh, assumption, did God have a choice in bringing about quantum mechanics and string theory in the first place? Well, that is the key question for which I have no answer. All I'm saying <laughs> is that as a physicist, I know the enormous constraints coming from quantum mechanics and relativity, for which there could be only one solution, which is string theory. But then you take it one step further. Where did quantum mechanics come from? Where did relativity come from? And for that, I have to resort to philosophy. <laughs> we know that matter is stable. If matter was unstable, it would be a very unpleasant universe. Things would crumble, no people, no love, no emotions, nothing, just a mist of electrons and protons. That would be the world if we didn't have a theory of everything, because then everything would fall apart. And so why do we even have a theory of everything? To give us stability. That's what electrons do. Electrons create molecules. Molecules are not Newtonian. Isaac Newton would never ever come up with a molecule. Because if I have a solar system with planets and I collide them, what happens to the solar system? It falls apart. But if I take electrons and I put them together, what do I get? I get a molecule. And that requires quantum mechanics. What I'm trying to say is that there's a reason why the world is quantum mechanical. Otherwise, the world would dissolve. It would crumble into a mist of electrons. So why do we need quantum mechanics? to make matter stable. That's why we have quantum mechanics. Second question, is the universe a simulation? A popular uh, discussion from the Matrix film to, uh, uh, to lots of uh, deep philosophical analysis in terms of uh, uh, the likelihood that our universe is a simulation. I don't think so. Take a look at your living room. How many molecules are there in your living room right now? Well, we're talking about maybe 10 to the 25 power we're talking about a lot, a lot of molecules inside your living room. Now try to model it. Try to simulate it with a digital computer. You can't. It's far beyond the capabilities because you're not talking about at the atomic level, mapping every single atom in your living room. And if you add quantum mechanics, it gets even worse. The Feynman path integral has an infinite number of paths. And so you have the no possibility that a finite digital computer can model even your living room, let alone the matrix. So then uh, uh, going uh, uh, forward, uh, is then the universe a quantum computer? Well, that's a big question. Um, for example, if it's so difficult to create a quantum computer, then how come a flower does it? A flower uses photosynthesis. Photosynthesis is a quantum mechanical property. So how come flowers can use the quantum principle, but we have to create these gigantic, humongous quantum computers to do the same thing? Well, we don't know. Mother Nature is still one step ahead. Mother Nature creates quantum computers everywhere. If you don't believe me, just look outside. The garden, the forest, they're all quantum computers. They all use photosynthesis. They all use the quantum principle, and we can't do it. 
we have to cool it down to near absolute zero to do what Mother Nature does in a clear afternoon summer day. Okay, next big uh, uh, quantum puzzle. Uh, we talked about the relationship between AI as the software and the and quantum computers as the hardware where quantum computing will now infinitely increase the power of the software, in this case, AI. Uh, do you think that there's a possibility that AI could become conscious? Well, I definitely think it is possibility because after all, we are conscious, aren't we? In some sense, we uh, are made out of flesh and blood. We're made out of software and we have programming because of course we, we, we live in a world where we bump into things and therefore we try to make sense of these things and we have hardware that makes it possible. And so in some sense, we exist. So if we exist, can't software that is uh, software and it made out of wetware, can't wetware also create robots that are organic? And the answer is yes. But I think that the robots of today are woefully inadequate to simulate a human being. What is the essence of how to simulate a human being? You want to have at least self-awareness. Now, if you go up to our biggest supercomputer, slap it on the back and say, good boy, you beat that world chess champion the other day. Good boy. The supercomputer will not say, yes, yes, thank you so much. I did it because of your work. No, the supercomputer won't even know what it did. It's that stupid. It has no self-awareness. Now, that doesn't mean that it's impossible, but that just means that the robots of today are not self-aware. You take our most advanced robot from the military, put it in the forest, and what does it do? Fall over, trips, can't even find any food or shelter. You take a cockroach and put it in the forest, and immediately it finds food, mates, shelter, everything, while our military robot rusts in the forest. Now, that doesn't mean that eventually they won't be as smart as a mouse, and then a rabbit, and then a dog or a cat, and then a monkey. Now, at that point, they could become self-aware. At that point, well, monkeys know they are monkeys. They know they're not human. Now, dogs are confused. Dogs are confused <laughs> because dogs think that we are a dog. We're the top dog. They are the underdog. That's just the way it is, folks. Well, monkeys, no. They know, they know that we are not monkeys. They know that we are different. So when robots start to attain that level of consciousness, then watch out. I think we should put a chip in their brain to shut them off if they start to become self-aware. Oh, that's a significant point. So you, you, you would be worried if uh, artificial intelligence through quantum computing would become self-aware. That, uh, that would frighten you. That's right. They would become self-programming. In other words, what does a computer do? It does what you tell it to do. It doesn't make up its own strategy. It doesn't make up its own wishes and uh, wherefore. No, it, you tell it what to do. When the robot gets to the point that it does what it wants to do, because it has its own self-awareness, its own personality, its own desires, wants, then watch out because those desires may not align with our desires. Now, I think, however, more controversially speaking, in the far future, when computers become so powerful that we cannot put a chip in their brain to shut them off. At that point, 
we may, we may have no choice but to merge with them, to become superhuman, to become superman and superwomen, and merge with our creation. But I think that is hundreds of years in the future. What about virtual immortality, where we can uh, theoretically upload our first person um, experiences, memories, uh, sense of self, self-awareness uh, to non-biological media so we could have uh, life well beyond our current uh, physical lives? Well, I think that has already arrived. Virtual immortality is a possibility. In fact, William Shatner, the actor who played in uh, the Star Trek series, was one of the first people to be interviewed for four days, four days asking about every single aspect of his life, tape recorded, put into a software program, and edited so that you can talk to the person. You could talk to the person about any aspect of their life, what they did, what their dreams were and hopes, and get a decent answer. So I think in the future, when you go to the library, you will not just take a book out about Winston Churchill, you'll talk to Winston Churchill because the computer program will have access to all his speeches, all the biographies written about the guy, and create an approximation to Winston Churchill. I would love to speak to Einstein. I would love to find out what his thinking process was and why he did certain things in his life, why he chose certain decisions. I would love that process. And I think in the future, all of us will have the capability of being immortalized. That is a word in the English language that didn't exist until recently. To immortalize someone it now means to create a software program that is indistinguishable from all the memories and the, the, um, the results of conversations with you because it's a byproduct of interviews with you. And so I think that is, that is coming very soon, the fact that you'll be able to interact with your ancestors one day you will interact with your great, 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 great grandchild who will want to know about his or her great, 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 illustrious ancestor. Uh, certainly that will be possible. Um, and with voice simulations, uh, it, it would even have the characteristics of the person's voice and with a hologram, you could create that. But that's completely different than the actual person maintaining uh, sentient life. Um, so some claim that virtual immortality can go way beyond what you're saying, which what you're saying makes the person virtual to a third party, but is the equivalent of a, of a, of a silent film of Charlie Chapman or Clark Gable in a, in a movie. You can see them in that movie, a third person, but Clark Gable or Charlie Chapman don't exist anymore. Uh, the question is, can one's first person experience, which some claim is, is theoretically possible in principle, be uploaded uh, to other media and, 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 and with quantum computing, the uh, capacity of a system would be vastly increased. So it would give that theoretical possibility more practical possibility. Well, there are at least two ways to answer that question. One is the Connectome project. We know, of course, that with the Human Genome Project, we're able to sequence all the genes that make up the human body. The Connectome Project is to download all the neural circuits of the human brain. The human brain has about 100 billion neurons. 
of the 100 billion neurons, each one is connected to about 10,000 other neurons, making it the most complex object in the known universe. There's nothing more complex in the universe that we know of than the human mind. And we've now been able to sequence all the neurons of a mosquito. This was just a few years ago. Every single neuron of the brain of a mosquito has been sequenced, so we know the location of all the nerves. And sooner or later, we'll do that to humans as well. That is one form of immortality in which you encode the memories of that person into your experiment. But there's another, yet another possibility, and that is real immortality. There's several approaches to this. One is that we now are beginning to understand the aging process. What is aging? Aging is the accumulation of error, mistakes. These mistakes accumulate and they wear down our cells until our cells eventually die. In other words, it's the second law of thermodynamics that says we have to die. But the second law says that in a closed system, in a closed system, you will necessarily die. But there's a loophole there. The loophole is, what about an open system? In an open system, you have energy and information from the outside world. So in other words, immortality does not violate the laws of physics. It should be possible to become immortal. Take a look at the hydra, a microscopic animal that lives in ponds. The hydra is immortal. We've never seen the, the germline of a, a hydra disappear. You cut it up, it simply regenerates and goes along its merry way. So I think that one day when we reduce the aging process to the molecular level with a quantum computer, we'll be able to regenerate them and in some sense live forever. Michio, this has been great fun. Uh, I love the book. Um, we look forward to uh, its success and we look forward to the next book. Uh, Viewers uh, can watch dozens of videos on quantum physics, hundreds on consciousness and other related subjects on the Closer to Truth website and the Closer to Truth YouTube channel. Thanks everyone for watching. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness and meaning, visit our website closer to truth.com.